You guys doing good? You're looking great. It's so good to see everybody. We are really uh, pushing in and uh, getting into the fall season and excited uh, just to be together. And I am personally, and we are really excited about one thing. I want to do one announcement off the top, and it's just this. Next Sunday, we are not going to be in this room together for uh, Thanksgiving. What we've decided to do is, and I'm over, maybe I'm overselling it, maybe, but um, what we're planning to do is every Thanksgiving weekend, instead of having a Sunday morning gathering, we're going to throw the party of the century. And you're like, you're overselling it. Okay, maybe I am. But we're not gathering here next Sunday. What we're doing is on Friday, we have rented the Lakeview Pavilion at Fanshawe Conservation Area. And we are just going to have a big old long table and a big party together starting at 6.30. And we really hope you can join us. There are a few folk in our community that are working tirelessly to make this an amazing evening. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna eat together. Uh, the church is covering some turkeys and bringing some turkeys. Everybody else, if you just RSVP at mypraxis.church Thanksgiving and let us know what you're bringing and that you're coming, you get an entrance to Fanshawe Conservation Area, a part of this, and we're gonna eat at around 6.30. We're gonna have a great time together. And then there's gonna be like uh, an in-house DJ or two that are gonna play some music and we're gonna have a great time, have some games. There's gonna be stuff for the kids. Um, incredible food and just hanging out. We have a pie bar. What else do we have, Kathy? It's just going to be amazing, is it not? Kathy and a few folk are just working tirelessly. And so we really value the table here, and I just hope that you can join us. So where's Heather? Is Heather in the room? Hi, baby. Um, everybody see Heather? If you know Heather, she is going to have an iPad at the back. If you want to register on site, then you can register. But we just want everybody to come, okay? The reason why we're doing this is we noticed with our community especially, being in rented facilities and whatnot, a lot of us like to travel on the long weekends. And we, instead of fighting that, right, maybe we just say, okay. And so on the Friday, we're just going to have a great, great time. And again, I hope you can come. Hope I'm not overselling it. But if you need rides, we'll get you there. It's just going to be a, a great time. Uh, together. So starting at 6.30, okay? Um, that's all I got for announcements. That is the big thing. There's lots of other things happening in church life, but that is the one thing we want you to know. With that said, we have been in a teaching series called From Redemption to Recycling. And what we've been doing is, look at what we've been doing is looking at what we feel are some of the most important questions that people are asking in culture, in life. And I think all of us in this room, just dialoguing and being in community with you all, um, there's so many questions about the Bible. There's questions about life and culture and God. And so what we've tried to do is say, we want to throw everything under the microscope this fall and just do more of a topical series. And what we've said is nothing is off bounds. Everything is on the table. So we've talked so far about things like social justice and hell and what is the church? What's the kingdom of God? What does salvation mean? What does all, all this mean? It's been, uh, it's been really beautiful. Then we took time to talk about prayer and more specifically about God's will and how this all works together. Is everything God's will? Is everything on the earth right now that's happening actually God's will? We did, did a teaching this week and we posted it to, to tackle that. And then we took a week to fast and pray. Many of you guys joined us this week in praying for a number of things and thank you for that. Through all of this, um, and I was kind of getting emotional this morning with our team as we were praying, I am very, I've just know, I've realized, I'm very thankful to be a part of a community like this that is open to this. I don't know if you realize this, not every community would be open to talking about some of the things that we want to talk about, and I'm just so thankful through, oh, they're, they're coming for you, Levi, that's what I always say to Levi, they're coming for you, he's not here, but isn't that great parenting right there? That is horrible parenting, do not do that, but... <laughs> But it's, it's our thing, okay? And he laughs, and he's not going to be a criminal. I don't, I don't think. We'll, we'll, we'll come back in 10 years, and we'll see. But I think he's a good kid. Um, I, I just want to say I'm so thrilled uh, to be a part of a community like this and to dialogue through some of the things with open minds. And just the conversations I've had with people are so beautiful. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about creation, evolution, and science today. Welcome. Uh, I had extra, extra people praying this week as we talk about this. Next week, we don't have a gathering because of Thanksgiving. So what we're going to do, I don't know if you know there's this thing called uh, the federal election coming, coming a week from tomorrow. So next week, we're going to post a teaching, though we don't have a gathering here, on power and politics. What do the scriptures and Jesus specifically say about power? I'm going to talk a little bit about what happens when the church 
works from a posture of power and the dangers of that. And you're like, well, that was just maybe like a German thing in the mid, you know, Germany saw this in the mid uh, 20th century, um, uh, you know, with some of the things in power and politics. But friends, we are living in an interesting moment uh, today. And how does the church posture itself in amongst all that? So we'll talk about that. Then we're going to talk two weeks from today. We have a panel. The hope is to have a panel of people. We have some brilliant people in our church that help with financial planning. And so two weeks from today, we're going to bust it open. And have a, the hope is to have a panel of people here um, that are going to help and lead us through some really practical things around money, which I'm excited about, and help us just uh, in that, as a, especially as a younger community. And then the last week of uh, October, we're going to talk about sexual formation. So this month, we're basically talking about the gods of our day, money, sex, and power. Cool? It's going to be fine. Now, with that said, if you want to open up a Bible, if you have a Bible on your phone or a paper Bible, I don't know where my Bible went, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 1 this morning. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, here's what I'm going to do. Um, we're going to talk about the creation accounts this morning, and the issue with this is a couple things. One, I'm a pastor. Welcome. Hi. Good to see you. I'm a pastor. I am not a scientist, and I would even say, like, my own emphasis, like, I tried in the Canadian context to find somebody that would maybe come and do some, lead us through some of this this morning, and I just felt like some of the people that just didn't have time or... Um, you know, there's people that we don't know that are really strong and good voices on this. So I'm a pastor. Uh, the other thing that many of you have come with is maybe some, ba not, not necessarily baggage, but ideas of what the creation accounts lead us to. Most of our kids, most, are in public school. Where evolution, evolution is a, a worldview and there's things going on all around us in these uh, different worldviews. And we have the scriptures. And um, I just want us to be open as we come to this in what the creation accounts are saying to us. And as with most things, a lot of people will point to the Bible as being archaic and out of date, and there being things in it that contradict itself. But then I ask them, have you read like the Bible from beginning to end? And most of the time, people haven't. And so we talk about the creation accounts and creation and evolution and the scientific moment we're in in our current reality, and here's the thing, most people haven't read Genesis 1 and 2. And I, we don't have a lot of time, but I actually want, just want to quietly read through Genesis 1 together because I think it's, we can make all sorts of assumptions and all sorts of critiques on the creation accounts, and yet some of us in this room have never like, sat under actually reading it. You've watched YouTube clips, you've read the New York Times, cool, that's great. Uh, I read the New York Times as well, that's great. Um, but have we actually like slowed down? I love the song we're singing because this really, you know, this new song, just the slowness of God's kingdom. Sometimes it wants to be phonetic and fast and in our face, but let's just take a moment and read. Is that okay? I'm reading from the NRSV. We're not even going to put it on the screen. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Maybe you just want to read along. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving, uh, moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters, which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below and the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gatherings of the waters he called seas, and God called and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees on the, earth, uh, on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetations, plant yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them and their kind. And God saw that it was good. 
There was evening and there was morning a third day. Hanging in with me. We're halfway there. Then God said, let, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas and the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and gave to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to every Everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Boom. Genesis 1 is the Hebrew creation account, written in Hebrew. We don't know how long ago. And then you get into Genesis 2, and you have almost a retelling of very much the same story. Now, what I want to do is I want you to lean in, and I just want us to think together a few, around a few things. And I just want to make a few observations about this. And again, I've wrestled through the whole dynamic of this story and the pastoral communal the communal emphasis that I kind of want to bring to this, because I think it does matter, but I think also we could possibly, like other things we've read in the Bible, at times be reading it wrong, and I want us to be open to that. Can I make a few points? Is that okay? You all right with this? You could leave if you want. You're to totally cool with that. The doors don't lock at the back, I promise. We're not like that, but here's, here's one thing I've been thinking through. And a guy named Tim Mackey has been super helpful. Do you guys know the guys at the Bible Project? They do an amazing job with these animated videos. And Tim, I don't know him, but has been a huge influence on my life and my uh, theology. I'll just say this. The Bible is an ancient text. And this is what Tim would say. The Bible's an ancient text, but we don't treat it like one. Can I say it again? The Bible is an ancient text but we often don't treat it like one. So I grew up in a great church. My dad was pastor, fantastic church here in town. And there was a guy in our community, uh, church community. He was from Texas. I was gonna try and do a Texas accent, but I just don't even know how to do that, y'all, right? You with me? And uh, he was a great guy, but I remember him continually saying something like this. I tried the accent, I'm not gonna try it. Picture a Texas accent in your head, okay? He would say things like this. God created in seven days. The Bible says it. I'm doing the accent now. I said I wouldn't. <laughs> He'd say, the Bible says it. And if we, if we don't believe that he created in seven literal days and the rest of the text is going to fall apart, the rest of the Bible falls apart. And he would say this to me often. He would try and make this point about the creation account. God created in seven literal days. And if you don't buy that in the way I, at least I think it is, then the whole Bible begins to fall 
apart. Now, you do have to remember that most people from Texas think Texas is a country, not a state, right? And so there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue. And what I've found is just in studying this a little bit and coming around what I think are some credible scholars, we often forget that communication always finds its meaning within a particular language or cultural context, right? Everything finds its meaning in a context. What do I mean by this? Well, right now, I'm, I read a ton, and this week I was reading a book on digital minimalism, and uh, just a book on how to be very weary of digital addiction. And by the way, if you want a job like 10 years from now, I suggest you go to school for psychology and digital addiction. You will have a job 10 years from now, okay? Right? I'm, I'm, you think I'm joking. I'm being absolutely dead serious. If you want like guaranteed work, uh, jump on it. So I'm reading this book on digital uh, addiction and digital minimalism, minimalism. Now, imagine me, just think for a second, imagine me taking this book that's filled with and littered with things like email, terms like email, and Facebook, and Twitter, and so on, and I took that book, maybe translated it into the language of the day, and took it to the dusty hills of the ancient Near East. Would a book filled with Facebook and Twitter and all sorts of things make sense to them if I were to rewind that? Well, we obviously know absolutely not. But here's what we don't take into consideration, the other direction because we're really smart Western Europeans who are enlightened and we know everything and now we have an iPhone in our pocket so it's really great. And the iPhone is amazing, there's parts of it that are fantastic. But we often don't think the other way, that the creation account we have in our Bibles is from thousands of years ago written in a drastically different culture and language. And then we pick it up in our rational, we've had some great things throughout the last 500 years happen, and I think we need to celebrate some of those things, but we pick it up in our rational, scientific minds, and we want to use it the way we want to use it, y'all, right? Without any consideration of the ancient Near East, who was writing this, the culture it was, and time it was written in, and can I just say this? That is really arrogant. That is really, really arrogant. If someone picked up something, you wrote a couple of thousand years later, they would need to discover the context and what was happening in that culture in that time. Say you were to write a letter right now, 2,000 or 3,000 or how many ever thousand years from now, that would have to be taken into consideration. And I find a lot of, and I'm just going to say, and I, I, email surge or Heidi or somebody, but a lot of evangelicals, I'm joking, that was a joke, all right? You can email me. But a lot of evangelicals just read it as though this is the way it is and this is the way I interpret it and this is, every, everything will fall apart, y'all. And I think every one of us needs to understand that reading the Bible, and especially the ancient origin story that we just read, is a cross-cultural experience, and we have to step into a worldview to understand it. And one of the things we have to do is we have to be humble. The one thing the Bible has done to me in the last decade, as I've engaged, engaged it in a deeper way, is it has humbled me to my core. We need to let it humble us. And so just keep in mind First of all, that the Bible is an ancient text, and we should probably think about treating it like this. But I'll also say this. We should, and here's the big, this is a big point for this morning. We should caution from using new science and our modern language to interpret an ancient text like Genesis. All of us should be very, very careful to take modern science, because we have all sorts of advances now that they didn't have in their day, and we'll get into this in a minute, be very careful to take modern science and place it on an ancient text, as well as modern language. So here's an example. This morning, I woke up, because I'm really romantic, just to put this into terms for you. I wrote um, Heather a little note. Crane, how you doing? Good. So good to see you. Do you just want to read this for everybody? I just wrote Heather a little note. Oh, sure. Awesome. Thank you. Oh, perfect. That's so great. You know what? You can even, thank you for that. You can even, I didn't give this to you, but I was thinking about it this morning. I had a sermon to write, so it's part of it, but it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. Everything's a sermon illustration. Ava's like, enough of this. You're going to have to start paying me. Okay, now you take that little note that I wrote, Heather, and imagine I put it into your hands, and you started to make an equation out of it. 
that would be bizarre, right? Imagine you try to like bring science into it or try and make a math equation out of the, that nice little letter that I wrote Heather. You, you and I would say that that is absolutely ludicrous. And I'm not saying that Genesis 1 and 2 and what we have in the origin story is like a love letter, but I do want to caution us from doing things with it that was not meant to do. If anything, I just want to share with our community is I think sometimes in the Western enlightened world, we've done things with the Genesis account that it's not meant to do. So as an example of this, let's just look at a few, can we look at a couple words that I think sometimes we have particular meaning in our culture and in our time and just unpack them for a minute just to show this. Is this all right? So be very careful of new science or our modern language. So for example, the word beginning is the word reshit in Hebrew, in the beginning, reshit. Now oftentimes we think the beginning as something that starts and that is absolutely true. But it's interesting with this Hebrew word that has layers to it, this word reshit, is actually an unspecified period of time in the past. That's how some scholars would translate it. Actually, the word reshit was used, if you read in Genesis 10, and it's used throughout the scripture, often talking about the beginning or the start of a king's reign. So there's this guy named Nimrod, which I don't suggest using as a baby name, just if you're going to have a child. In Genesis 10, just be careful of that, all right? Genesis 10, it uses this word reshit of his particular uh, rule, right? Now, what, the thing we have to think through, was there history before Nimrod's rule? Yes, it's talking, this word reshit is the beginning, but it doesn't necessarily, in, in the Hebrew mindset, mean the beginning of human history. Or what about this, the word earth? The word earth. What do we think of when we use the word earth in modern English? We think of typically a globe. Some of you may think if you're gardening that the earth is kind of the soil or whatever. But to the Hebrew people, earth, when we read it in the Genesis context, always meant land to them. So there's these polar meanings, there's these diverse meanings around this word. Sometimes I can think in my head in English a couple, how many ever thousand years later, think about something, and maybe the writer was meaning something else. Or what about this? And this is, I mean, we've got to think through this. There's this word rakia, rakia in, in Hebrew. I'm not great with Hebrew. Some of your versions of the Bible, I think it's verse 6, I think, uh, talk about it as the vault or firmament. The vault or firmament. Um, now, it's interesting with the vault or firmament because to the Hebrew people, they had not yet sent a man to the moon. Uh, in a few weeks, I'm getting in uh, what one comedian would say in a tube in the sky, this thing called an airplane, and I'm going to bolt up into the air and then I'm going to come back down. We actually have a pilot in our community. It's amazing. He does this like every day. It's crazy. You're in a tube sitting in the sky. How crazy is that? Be thankful, right? But it's interesting. They had never sent anybody up their science, to them it meant a solid dome above them that keeps the rain or the waters elevated. Now, again, they hadn't had all these beautiful scientific things that we've developed in. The question is, were they wrong? Well, they weren't wrong. In their moment and in their time, when this was written, whenever it was written, they literally thought that there was a firmament that held the waters above them. They would look up and see the blue sky and that there was this dome that would hold the waters back. Now, do we believe that now? No, we don't believe that now. I mean, you can believe that. You can believe the earth is flat. You can do, hey, you can do whatever you want. But this is, this is not a thing anymore. So you just got to take into consideration that we actually have new science and different kinds of language around these things that the ancient people, like, I try and tell my kids there was a day without Netflix, and they look at me. They look like I basically try and tell them there was a day in, like, 1996 when I was led into a computer lab in school, and the teacher said, this is a thing. And it was like MS-DOS. This is called interneting. And all the kids were like, oh, this is amazing. And it was like talking in MS-DOS uh, MS style. We have to remember what we have. The firmament, the writer of this, I think actually literally thought above them was the waters and that, that was being held by, back by a dome. Things obviously have changed. So we've got to be very careful, right, to do this. Three, I'll just say this because language changes over time. I'll just say this. The other thing we need to consider is that the Bible's creation narratives are not in dialogue with modern scientific ideas about world origins, 
They are in dialogue with ancient Near Eastern, whether it's Egyptian or Babylonian or Canaanite, cosmologies. This is what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is in dialogue with. Other creation accounts. Some of you, this is it's gonna be a whole new world. You ready? It's a whole new world is coming. Many people do not know that there were other ancient Near Eastern groups that at the time had their own creation accounts. And in many ways, if you study this at like an academic level, you begin to see that the Hebrew creation account, especially Genesis 1 and 3, shows a number of similarities to the other creation accounts around them. Now, there was a ton of differences, but the, probably the writer of this, some think it's Moses, fair enough, actually borrowed from other creation. There's such similarities amongst other things that the creation account in Genesis adopts many of these similarities and is actually in conversation with these other worldviews instead of your 21st century guy who wants to use science with everything. The original conversation was with things like the Enuma Elish, which was a Babylonian creation account, and the Baal epic, the Canaanite uh, creation account. These cos cosmologies tell a story that creation ultimately is the result of a great battle of the gods, and then the Hebrew writer takes some of that, and the Hebrew creation account shows that Israel's God has no rivals and simply speaks reality into being. And Israel's God is not like those other gods. He is not a bloodthirsty warlord, but a creator. And ultimately, he, in his beauty, is an artist. Are you with me? It's speaking to these things, not to your guy in the 21st century working for a creation ministry, nerding out in the 21st century around science. It's speaking to this. And I'm not against that per se. I just think we need to keep it in its context. So, ancient Near Eastern narratives are not proposed to give scientific ideas about world origins. Instead, these narratives, whether it was in Babylon or the Canaanites and now the Hebrew people, were looking to address other things. More, I'm going to say it, and I know I'm not a scientist. You can say what you want, more important things, like who are we? This is what these creation accounts were written for. Where are we is a big one. And why are we here? These are the more important questions, all right? So Tim Mackey, he'd say it like this. The early chapters of Genesis accurately present two accounts, two accounts, Genesis 1 and 2, of cosmic and human origins in the language and ideas of the ancient Hebrews. These texts should not be removed from their ancient context and read as if they were to refer to the process of cosmic or human origins in 21st century scientific terms. They speak in terms of an ancient Near East perception of the world and should be interpreted within that setting. When we discern the meaning of the text in the ancient world, we find that they constitute a worldview statement about God and his relationship to the world and about humans and their relation to God and the world. This basic worldview statement transcends its ancient cultural setting and commands the attention of God's people in all places at all times. How are we doing? I know it's a fire hose, but I think what he's saying there is, this is still applicable for us, but just where's my letter? Oh, you took it. You took it. Put it on your bedside table. Think of me daily, okay? All right. Um, <laughs> just like you wouldn't take a love letter or whatever and try and make an, a math equation, let's keep this in its, its context, which is the ancient Near East. And we've worked really hard to do that with Paul's letters, right? There's a Greco-Roman world. When Jesus is talking in the Gospels, we always make sure to talk about what's going on around him because it's super important than just like cherry-picking verses and saying things. So those are three really important things I would just say, consider that. I'm not trying to push anything on you. Obviously, there's all sorts. You pick up a book on this stuff, there's a million different uh, ways to come about it. So how, the question becomes, how should the creation account be read? Well, I'll say this. Um, the tr traditional Western interpretation, I think this is just me, goes something like this. And this is what a lot of people think, and that's great, that the Genesis creation account recounts God's creation of all materials from nothing. The focus is on God creating all physical materials, including land, water, animals, humans, and the like. For most, this means that God created in a literal six-day period while resting on the seventh day. 
It also leads many through this tradition, through this traditional literal interpretation, to hold a young earth view of creation. And a lot of people, this is kind of how they read it, as six, six or seven literal days and how God created. They're coming, Levi, duck buddy, they're coming. Um, and with that, with this particular worldview, for a lot of Western people, comes with an idea. Don't you just love our community? It's great. We're chill, we're chill. Not many churches have the sirens going, I love it. With this particular view comes a more of a young earth and young humanity view. Now, you can read it that way. I, that is amazing. I'm not here to necessarily tell you how to read this, but all from all that we've learned, at least the three points that I've made, what if we read it in its ancient Near Eastern context? Like, what if we were humble enough to humble ourselves and say, I know I'm a Western European who has a lot of cool stuff, and in just a few hours, we'll be watching Red Zone all afternoon in my baggy pajama pants. Anybody with me? No, none of you. Okay. Uh, but this is going to be my afternoon. There's all these things. I have all these things at my fingertips. But what if I could humble myself and put myself in this worldview? I'll put it like this. There's a guy named John Walton who has done, a, he's like the top scholar, one of the top scholars around the ancient Near East. And what he's tried to do is help the church read these accounts and come to things like science and evolution with the understanding of the ancient Near East around them. We've already considered we should not put new science on this. We've already considered it was written in a, in a drastically different day. But John Walton would take it a little farther. I am not saying you have to believe this, but he is top scholar in this area, and he talks about two things that all of us should think through around the ancient Near East. The first is this, function instead of material. Function instead of material. Now, I want, please turn your ears on. Everybody listening? All right? It is a given throughout scripture that God is creator. Like not just Genesis 1 and 2. It's a given from Genesis Revelation that God is creator and he is the one responsible for creation in every respect. And ultimately he has a purpose or a goal as he creates with intentionality. Did you hear what I said? The scriptures affirm that God is creator. But Walton would say when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2, we need to think better, especially Genesis 1 and 2, we need to think through function more than we do materials. So the word create, God created, is this word bara. Can you say bara in these early, all right? And many scholars would say that bara has to do more with function than it does with materials. And if we were to take ourselves from here and go back into the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, existence, something existing, was better defined in functional terms more than it was material terms. Follow me. So ancient Near Eastern people often thought more about function than they did material. So people in the ancient Near East did not think of creation in terms of making material th things. Instead, everything to them was function-oriented. People in the ancient Near East believed that something existed not by virtue of its material properties, but by virtue of having a function in a ordered system. I know we're nerding out, but to the ancient Near Eastern people, they thought of function more than they did of material. So, some would think, and Walton would think, the beginning state in Genesis 1 is material. You have material, and you hear in the language here, but it has not yet been given a function. And this is what the creation account records. We're not arguing here if God is creator. God is creator. But for Genesis 1, what God is doing is bringing into order and giving material function. You with me? So even things like formless and void, you hear these words in English early on. The word tohu, a lot of theologians would argue that this refers to functionality and something that's functionally non-existent. What it's saying is that the earth is described as not yet functioning or in an ordered system at the beginning of Genesis 1. God is taking pre-existing stuff and bringing order or function to that stuff. So it's like this. In my hand, I have here some, it's like cheap dollar store, but it's clay. They call it that at least. And this is material. 
What some of these scholars would say is when you read this in terms of ancient Near Eastern perspective, the writer was not concerned as much about this, the material. God created the material, but not as concerned as much about this as this. So you have clay, but what Walton and others would say is God is bringing function to the materials, and obviously we know a mug like this is created out of clay, and in the morning I press my beautiful French press every single morning, and I put the coffee in, and I sip it deliciously because this has a function. God, in, in some respects, if we think of it like this, takes this and makes this and gives it function. Actually, one of the things that Walton, you follow me? One of the things Walton would say is that actually when you look at it in its context in the ancient Near East, day one, God created the basis for time. Day two, God created the basis for weather. And day three, God created the basis for food. The story is, is that in this creation, bringing function from materials, that we get the great three functions early on, and these are the foundations of life. Time, weather, as you can hear the rain come down, and food. This is a completely different way, but I just encourage you maybe to think of it through, because even the language you begin to see is that God is taking material and, and creating function with it, speaking, and now there's function in an ordered system, in an ordered world. You with me? Then the second thing he would say is this. If you really want to read it in its original context, you crazy, I'm, I'll talk to myself, you crazy, arrogant, you know, Canadian thousands of years later, maybe you should take yourself back, and that creation should be viewed as an ancient temple inauguration ceremony. You're like, what? I know. I, I, I know. But when you look in the order of how things go in the story, in the biblical story, heaven and earth are together. And in the case of the Garden of Eden, it's viewed by the author of Genesis, heaven and earth together in Eden is, uh, you see it, is viewed as an archetypal sanctuary. Eden is a place where God dwells and where man would worship him. And so, you know this, if you read about the temple and the tabernacle later on that God calls Israel to make, pitch this big tent and they have all these things in the Holy of Holies for worship and the first temple and the second temple. Do you know, I don't know if you know this, but all sorts of imagery and signs and things in the temple and the tabernacle, guess what they had images of? Eden. There were all sorts of things that even when God says, this is how you're going to create this thing, there were all sorts of images of the Garden of Eden. It gives us a picture that the garden was a sanctuary, a temple, and the days of creation, the six days and then the rest, are an inauguration of this temple. The seven days are not given necessarily as a time over which the materials come into existence, but the time devoted to the inauguration of the functions of the cosmic temple. I know, we don't go to temples. This is like far-fetched from us, but let's have a little bit, I think let's have a little bit of humility. This would have fit, this idea would have fit right in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking. Because deities always dwelt where? In temples. And Yahweh needed a temple to dwell in. And this may, maybe in its context is actually the better story of what it's telling. That the garden was Yahweh's temple and the days of creation are the days of its inauguration or dedication. You know how we just had a baby dedication here, a uh, child dedication last week, this beautiful story. God's dedicating this temple, the writers writing this and recording this, and the seven days of creation are a temple inauguration ceremony bringing material into function. So some of you are thinking, wait a second, right? Like, and I, 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 know, I get it. Some of you are thinking, wait a second, I would have never in my life thought of that. That's because you're not in the ancient Near East, and that's okay. Just, just take a deep breath. But in its context, honestly, these things, I would consider them and take, take them seriously. And I'm personally thankful for guys like Walton and others, other Hebrew scholars who help us discern these things and how we should look at them. You okay? So John Walton would put it like this. Here's what he says. The seven days are not given as the period of time over which the material cosmos came into existence, but the period of time devoted to the inauguration of the cosmic temple. It is this inauguration and entrance of the presence of God to take up rest that creates the temple. 
If the seven days refer to a cosmic temple inauguration, then Genesis 1 as a whole has nothing, did you hear what he says? Has nothing to contribute to the discussion of the age of the earth. This is not a conclusion designed to accommodate science. It was drawn from an analysis and an interpretation of Genesis in its ancient environment. The point is not that the biblical text therefore supports the view of an old earth, but simply that there is no biblical position on the age of the earth. Viewing Genesis 1 in this way does not suggest or imply that God was uninvolved in the material origins of the universe. It only contends that Genesis 1 is not that story. Make sense? Walton's like, listen, we sometimes want to talk about how the materials came into being. God created the materials. But let's think of it more as a temple being inaugurated. And with that, we're not freaking out and even hating each other over the age of the earth, which a lot of Christians do. Right? So it's funny that even here, there's a debate over the word day. The word day in Hebrew is yom. Some people have said, well, it's a 24-hour literal day. Some people say it's a, a chunker period of time. What's funny about Walton is he would say, I actually read the day literally. I read that it's a 24-hour period day, but it's not God creating material in 24 hours a day. It's, it's showing in 24-hour segments how God is bringing function. Oh, yeah, baby. Follow me? All right. So the fire hose, and you're like drowning right now. Can we just take a deep breath, everybody? You're like, no other church would ever dare to do something crazy like this. I know. Normally, this is like a Wednesday night. You know, three or four nerds show up, and we all, right? And then I force this on all of you. Are the nerds out there with me? Anybody? A few, there's a few of us. Okay. I, I actually think this is important. Okay? So now let's ask a few more practical questions. I do not have all the answers. I'm not a scientist. It's so funny. I love school, and Heather will roll her eyes. I did fairly well throughout school, but I hated math and science. So if you get me to write an essay or like whatever, or history job, I'm just in. I'm not a scientist. But what about the age of the earth? What about the age of the earth? Let me say it. Nope. No. No. Do not use the Bible to go there. I'm just going to plead with you. Do not, don't do it. That's not what it's meant for. The writer wasn't thinking, you know what? I hope like thousands of years from now, new people, uh, now people will use this text to try and figure out the age of the earth. If the, the writer so long ago would have thought that, known that he would have flipped, I know it, or he or she, or, but we think probably Moses. This was not the writer's intention. And this is not the Bible's intention. So I would encourage you with the age of the earth, like you can, you can debate about it if you want, but don't use the Bible for it. It's like playing tennis with a hockey stick. It's not what it's meant for, right? It's like going through a locked door with a crowbar instead of a key. It's not, it's not, the Bible is not meant, it's not meant to be used scientifically, okay? What does this mean for science then? So what does this mean for science? The creation accounts that we have are not meant to compete with modern science. I've said it like twice and I'll probably say it before we're done. What we have here is not meant to compete with modern science. So I'll just say this, some of you have baggage and you've grown up in environments where you wanted to be a scientist. We have, for a smaller community, we have doctors and uh, nurses and all sorts of people in the scientific fields. And I'm just sorry, I'm sorry if you felt because you're a disciple of Jesus, that you had to reject science. I'm, I'm sorry for that. In the Bible, faith is not opposed to evidence-based truth. It just isn't. It's so sad that we've come to a place where you have to have a, either have God or you have to have science. And I'm, I just, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's been pushed on you. But that's not what the Bible is trying to do. I can at least say that much. Not a scientist, but I can say that much. And as much as I am being critical of using the creation accounts in a certain way, I do think there's times, at times, to be critical of science. We need to have an open mind with science. Why? Because there were scientific discoveries that what, in the last hundred years, have what? Changed. So I think there's, you have to, we, there has to be room for skepticism that things have changed. Did an asteroid hit the Earth a long time ago and make certain animals extinct? Guys, I wasn't there. <laughs> Nobody thinks that's funny. I was, and this is what they teach my kids in school. Uh, I wasn't there, so I think there's, there's room to be critical of that. I mean, it would kind of be cool to be there and see it, but I wasn't there. But you do not have to choose between God and science, because our, and I'm going to say it, our, this is ours, our ancient text 
should not be compared to modern science. It's like the, the phrase of the morning. So some of you are like, I believe the earth is young and humanity on the earth is young. Fan flippantastic. Others of you are like, nah, old earth. And you know, there's been these discoveries. Scientists would say that the, the, just looking at the age that the, the earth has to be older than often what Christians or people in that world have thought. Fan, honestly, fantastic. Have at it, have at it. But I do not believe that we have to negate science for God. What does this mean for human origins? Well, we haven't had a ton of time and we're running out of time. There are a number of views around human origins that fit into the creation accounts. There's the archetypal view that believes Adam and Eve are literary and archetypal symbols for all of humanity. And the story is ultimately about humans' experience of temptation and their moral failure. So it's kind of an archetypal story. There's also the literal view, which a lot of people hold to, that Adam and Eve were a real historical couple. The story explains how sin and spiritual death entered into the world. And then you have this other view. I don't like the name of it. Some would call it the metaphorical view, that the creation account describes a real event about the moral failures of the earliest humans, but it does so in a non-literal way with motif and imagery common to ancient Israelite culture. I think there may be room for that. So Adam and Eve represent, they are representations or prototypes of a large group of the first humans, homo sapiens. This is known as polygenism. And some others would think, and C.S. Lewis actually thought this, if you're a Lewis fan, C.S. Lewis thought that Adam and Eve were the first homo sapiens to have evolved from earlier hominids. And this is known as monogenism. These are some of the things that people have held. Um, we're not going to get into that as much. What does this mean and what we've talked about? What does it mean for evolution? Quick note, then we're done. Just like science, I think we need to be careful with the idea that the Bible is out to fight modern evolution theories. It wasn't written to fight all of these things. It's a story declaring God as creator and sustainer. And humans are created in the image of God, which was so upside down to all the other creation accounts in its time. And they had a function. Anybody know what human's function was? To rule with God, which was like, in all the other stories, the gods are at each other and like women weren't even a part of the story. And here our creation account has male and female and they have this function to rule with him. So here's the thing. There will be, don't hear what I'm not saying. There will be certain ideas that because of the worldview that we see here, it will reject certain evolutionary theories. Mainly that if you say God isn't creator, well, I would just say the whole scripture is pushing against that worldview, just like it was in the ancient Babylonian world. So there, I'm not saying you should take swallow evolution whole with everything. I'm not saying that at all. There are things in evolutionary theories that I think the story would push back. And then there's probably other things that are compatible. Many things that the Bible actually leaves unsaid and doesn't address. And I think we need to be careful as Christians. Just, no, not to everything, right? I think we need to be careful. We just have to rem remember, I said, this is the seventh time I've put this in my notes, that the Bible is not addressing modern science. I'm amazing. Thanks for coming. Let's pray. <laughs> I even put here in the notes, have I said it enough? And you're like, yeah, I want to go and eat lunch. Okay. So Tremper Longman would put it like this, great theologian, it's my conclusion that evolution and all its entailments are no threat to the biblical account of creation, which has no interest in telling us about God's method of creation. So he would also take the, the idea of material and function. God is telling a bigger story than just our modern science stories. So the ancient Near Eastern narratives are not proposed to give a scientific idea about the world's origins. Here's what I want, I want to take two minutes. I know it's been longer and you can't, honestly, people do like hundreds of hours of work on this stuff. Can we circle back though, just for a minute and talk about what these accounts in the ancient Near East were trying to talk about? They're trying to talk about this. Who are we? Where are we? And why are we here? I would just, you can read it any way you want. There's tons of freedom here. Um, and I love you guys so much. This is such a thoughtful community. But I, I hope we, at the end of the day, can focus on this. Who are we? 
well, I just don't believe you're a random happenstance. You're just random. I believe you and I were created in the image of God with the function to rule and reflect with him. You're created in God's image. You're not an accident. We're not just misplaced. We're created in the image of God. This is who we are. And this is the story it's trying to tell. Amongst all that we try and do with it, this is who you are created and loved by God from the foundation of the earth. Why, where are we? We're living in God's good creation. And though it's broken and torn apart at the seams through sin and rebellion, can I just let you know, we're not going anywhere. Now, if you die, you know, we're all gonna die. I think all of us, one or one, 10 out of 10, the last time I checked, people die. If we die before Jesus returns, it's interesting that the story, the telos of the story, leads us to believe that we're gonna be where in the end? Heaven is where? Here. So it's interesting. Where are we? We're exactly where God wants us to be. And in the end, we will live on this. Don't buy into the kind of the evangelical, platonic view of heaven where it's like you're the cream cheese lady floating on clouds, right? Like that's for most of us what we think of heaven. The Bible's picture of heaven is that the telos is here. Yeah, we look around, there's climate change, all sorts of climate change stuff, all sorts of injustice, all sorts of sin, all sorts of things going on around us. But we are in, in God's good creation and he is going to renew this place. So it started good, it's broken, and in the end, it's gonna be really, really good. And why are we here? We're here to co-rule with God. We're here to come along, we're here to, that's actually the major part of our worship. I love singing songs, I love really long sermons. <laughs> really long sermons, just joking. Um, we are here to join God in the renewal of this world. That's why we're here. And that's so different than the Babylonians and the Canaanites who saw it as a bloodbath and in many ways saw humans as secondary to the whole thing and yet this creation account. We have male and female. We are here and we are here to worship God with everything and to be in relationship with him just like we were in the garden. And so with this, you know, there's all sorts of ideas. I probably, honestly, I'm humble enough to say I probably have not done this justice, but I hope there's also some some contextual ways that we can think through it. But my friends, those three questions are the ma main reason why I think we have this in our hands. And that, though science changes and discovery changes, and yes, there isn't a dome of water over us, a firmament, right? These questions continue to remain timeless for, for my kids' generation and so forth. And so I want us to think through them deeply. You with me?